0: Well, Cornwallet, it's good to have you with us this weekend, and I just want to say uh, it is so great to have people from Canada watching. I've been hearing from some of our folks in Canada that are tuning in, as well as as far south as Belize. It's good to have you guys. I know that you get to meet together, and in living rooms, and on camping trips I hear this weekend, and garages, and all over the place. I also want to say thank you uh, for your thank you notes. Some of you, when you send in your your check, your tithe check, uh, include thank you notes to thank Our staff for being able to have this every weekend. Our worship team, we thank them for every week leading us in great worship. Our tech team, who does all the behind the scenes stuff, our preaching team. Uh, So, thank you not only for your financial support, but for your encouragement. And thank you uh, for tuning in again today. As we continue, (coughs) excuse me, in this series on Moses, and I have loved going deeper into the life of Moses. One of the things that has been so exciting to me is to see how all of this stuff from Moses and from Exodus and from the early uh, times with, with the children of Israel, how it all points to Jesus. In fact, you remember years ago, the whole WWJD, what would Jesus do? To a certain extent, when you study the life of Moses, you begin to understand what would Jesus do? What would he do hundreds and thousands of years later? And uh, and it's been kind of cool to see that not only what he would do, but what we are doing, looking at the life of Moses and how it points to Jesus, is something that Jesus did as well. Let me explain that. After the very first uh, you know, Easter celebration, the Resurrection Sunday, Jesus comes back from the dead. He meets with Mary and some of the disciples, tells them, go up to Galilee and meet me there. Later that afternoon, he's on the road seven miles away from Jerusalem with a guy named Cleopas and another disciple, and he's just walking along with them. They're on their way to Emmaus, and they don't recognize that it's Jesus. He just kind of comes up, and he's talking with them, and they're kind of down in the face, and he's like, hey, what's up, guys? What's the problem? And they're like, are you kidding me? Are you the only one in the whole world that doesn't know what's going on about Jesus and all that? And I love how Jesus responds. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. Jesus does with them what we've been doing this weekend and throughout this summer in this series, and it says this. And beginning with Moses, this is Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, the very thing that we've been doing, Jesus did. He says, Let me tell you about Moses. Let me refresh your memory about that. Let me talk about that. And he points out how it all points. And it's this preview that, that everything that Jesus says about Moses, he says, it reveals who I am. It's this preview. And so I kind of put that that preview and the revealing together, made up a bit of a word, that Moses reveals Jesus. Like in a preview way, he reveals more about Jesus, that all of the things we've been studying point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. And, and we're going to see that again today and next week. Oh man, I cannot wait till next week. I'm so excited about next week, so I'm excited about today's as well. But don't miss next week when you see something that many of you have just thought was kind of this irrelevant thing to pass over, how it so points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. Can't wait. I can't tell you more about that now. Come back. All right. So today, uh, what we're going to do So we're going to be primarily in uh, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. We're about halfway through. The first half of the book of Exodus gets them out of Egypt. And now we're going to uh, go forward from there. And what we find, if you remember, in the second week of the series, Moses was out with his father-in-law Jethro, and he's in the Median Desert. He goes on the far side of the desert. He's tending the flocks out there. He sees this oddity, this bush that has flame from within it, but it's not consumed, the, the burning bush. And he goes up onto Mount Horeb, or, uh, or Mount the mountain of God, which it would be later referred to. And he has this experience. In that moment... He is called by God. This is what Pastor Brian preached about last week. If you weren't, if you didn't tune in last week, watch last week's sermon. Pastor Brian talks about God's calling on Moses. And Moses pushes back. He says, I can't talk, and and, and what if they don't believe me? And, and and all this. You know, what about how about getting my brother? That kind of thing. And then God says this to him in Exodus chapter 3: God said, I will be with you. I will be with you, Moses. It's not so much about you. I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you thats that it is I who have sent you. I, you're going to know without a doubt, not only that I am with you, but this is going to be one of the indicators that what I'm telling you is true. When you have uh, brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. You're going to be back here, Moses. You're going to be back here with the people of Israel, and you are going to worship me on this mountain. And that will be a sign to you. So fast forward through that, all the deal that Moses goes back, he meets his brother Aaron. They go in, tell the Israelites, the Israelites are all excited about it. They tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh's not as excited about it. Go through the 10 plagues, which uh, week three, we pointed, the plagues point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. And then after that, uh, the Passover, which points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. Then they go through the Red Sea. That was one that we didn't even have time to talk about. Didn't even go into that whole story. They get out into the desert, and they're coming out into the wilderness there. And now they're hungry, and then they begin to complain. This is what Pastor Kip preached about two weeks ago. And if you didn't see that one, go back and watch that, where God provides for them quail and manna. This manna, every single day, like when Jesus prayed, give us this day our daily bread. But it wasn't just Jesus pointing back to, to the manna. It was the manna pointing to Jesus because he would be the bread of life that would sustain. Oh, I love it so much. And then we didn't even touch on the one where, where Moses takes his stick and he smashes the rock because they're thirsty and water comes out of the rock. And, and you can read that one in Exodus 17, I believe, or First Corinthians chapter ten verse four. Great little verse, just kind of summarizes and again points to Jesus. Jesus is the rock; out of Him comes this living water. So much good stuff. So we get all that way, and we bring, that brings us back to uh, the, out in the wilderness where Moses is with his people. It's three months to the day that they came through the Red Sea. Three months to the day after the Passover. Three months to the day after they left. Egypt. And this is what we read in Exodus chapter 19. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Just as God had said, they're back now in front of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai or the mountain of God. It's the same mountain. It's like saying Denali or uh, Mount McKinley. It's, It's the same mountain, just different names. So here they are in front of the mountain of God. And as I mentioned, and I I believe in week two showed you this, we were just, uh, some of us were just there in March, and this is a picture of what most people believe is Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And here they are. And it's at this point that we experience one of the most uh, epic, um, iconoclastic, you know, scenes in Moses' whole life. It's here when, when he's back with, with the, uh, the people of Israel and they're at the mountain of God that something happens. Maybe this will spark your memory. I'll do my best rendition. All right, you know what that is? That's Moses with the Ten Commandments. Moses is out there with up to two million people. He goes up on the mountain of God, and God says to him, you don't know what to do, I'll tell you what to do. Take two tablets and call me in the morning. Okay, sorry, but if you would have thought of that, you would have said it too. This is where we get into the whole thing with the Ten Commandments. Now, Ten Commandments, a big deal with the Ten Commandments. You ask people, well, how do you get into heaven? Well, keep the Ten Commandments. Or people will say, I believe in the Ten Commandments. Or we need the Ten Commandments on the walls of the courtroom. Or we need the Ten Commandments in the, in the schools. We need the ten. It's all about the Ten Commandments. Which I say, that'd be great. People say, some of you might say, well, I believe in the Ten Commandments. Here's a question for you. Do you even know where they're found? Now, the Bible is a good answer. You can probably guess it's in Exodus, since that's what we're going through. And you could probably, if you've listened... Guess that it's somewhere in Exodus 19 or 20, though you might not be sure which. All right, we'll give you a pass on that one. No no quiz there. How about this one? I believe in the Ten Commandments. Do you know the Ten Commandments? And I'm not asking you now to stop and take a quiz in your living room or wherever you are, but do you know the Ten Commandments? And I know for some of you, I've just lost you because you're going to start trying to remember if you can get all ten of them. And maybe you can, and many of you cannot. All right, well, do you keep all the Ten Commandments? Oh, now that's an easy one. Sure, it says, do not kill. I haven't killed anybody. And, and you shall not steal. Okay, and I haven't stole big stuff. I mean, and, and it's not much. And, and you should not commit adultery. Well, define adultery. Well, Jesus defines it this way. If you have lust in your heart, okay, I'm out. Okay, okay, so maybe I don't keep them real, real well, but I believe in them, and I think they're really important. Here's another question. Why is it? that we always have these pictures like this with these 10 commandments on two tablets and they almost always, as in this one, almost always have Roman numerals. When Roman numerals won't be invented for 650 years. Moses didn't have the Roman numerals. But we seem to think they need to be on there. And why is there two tablets for Ten commandments, that some of them are not that long. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Couldn't God have like, written in a smaller point size, and, and, and why that? And the biggest question is, with these two tablets that Moses comes down with, how does he carry the two tablets and the rod as well? That, that one baffles me forever. And the question is, is that really what's on these two tablets. Because when Moses is on the mountain, he not only gets the moral law, he gets the civil law, and he gets the ceremonial law. So it's not just this. In fact, we read this about these uh, 10 Commandments. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets, that's correct, the two tablets of testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. This is not accurate. They were inscribed, filled up, both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. One more little side note. Why two? Was it that there were so many laws that they couldn't fit on one? Was it that it seemed like it was more substantial if it was on two? Kind of like when your teacher said, write a two-page essay, and you had such wide margins and wide rule and big, fat husky pencils and biggest handwriting you've ever done to trying to fill up two pages is that it here's what many believe is that the two tablets had the exact same thing on both of them because it was entering into a covenant a commitment and one of the tablets was for god and one of the tablets was for moses and the israelites these two parties that were entering in to this covenant and this commitment all right so we have this, uh, these, these tablets, and it's often referred to, the Ten Commandments are often referred to as the law. Now when you talk about the law, and, and hang with me, we're going we're gonna to get back to the Scripture when you talk about the law, very often people have this idea, and some of you do as well, that the law are these things that we are to follow, we're to obey so that we can be acceptable to God, it will keep us out of hell, and uh, that somehow we will get on God's good side if we obey, if we perform these good enough or, you know, adequate enough to get to this point that somehow we're on God's good side, or some of us may not state it this way, but selfishly we're thinking if I perform them good enough, I'll get God on my side and get God to do my will and, and do my bidding for me. Other people say this whole law thing, that's why I don't want to be a part of it. It's so restrictive. And some of you, you may be watching me and say, that's why I'm not a Christian. That's why I'm not religious. That's why I don't go to church. It's all about rules. It's, it's all about what I shouldn't do, what I can't do. It's like ruining my life, taking my fun away. And I want to throw out something for you to consider. What if? What if the law was never intended to primarily be about trying to get God to accept you? And what if the law is not at all about ruining your life? That's what I want to talk about today as we get into this and continue on. All right, we're still in in, uh, Exodus chapter 19. Verse 4 says this. Moses is up uh, there on the mountain. And God says, tell the Israelites this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He says, let's take a look at this. This just happened three months ago, remember? And what was your part? Your part was to watch and learn. I did the rest of it. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who carried you on eagles' wings with my strength. I'm the one who did that and I brought you to myself. In fact, earlier, when Moses had gone back to, to, to deliver them and Pharaoh increased their work and they grumbled against Moses again, that again, Pastor Kip talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they grumbled against Moses, they're all upset. And God said to Moses, tell this to the Israelites in, in uh, chapter six, verse six. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Remember? <laughs> When Moses was on the mountain, he says, what if they don't know? They ask me who sent. Tell him, I am the I am that I am. Tell them the Lord. I am the Lord. I, I'm the one who's in charge. Now hold on to that because we're going to come back to this in a, in a few minutes. I am the Lord. Don't forget that. And look who's doing all the work here. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I'm the one that's going to do this. I'm the one that's going to deliver you. And I am the one who has done this. I have delivered you. And notice this, that he does all this, he says all this, and it's not a condition. If you obey my commandments, then I will deliver you out of Egypt. If you follow my rules, then I will bring you on eagle's wings. If you do this... Notice, the law hasn't even been given yet. That maybe, maybe, just maybe, that the law was not about, it was not about the condition, but the confirmation of the relationship. say said again, that the law was not a condition of the relationship, but a confirmation of the relationship. He said, I've already chosen you. I've already delivered you. I've already brought you to myself. I already have this relationship. It's not conditional that if you'll do these things, then I will bring you out of Egypt. And here's kind of the point I, I want us to hold on to, is that when God gives us his law, when he gives us his instructions, it's not first and foremost and primarily or even mostly about behavioral modification. So many times we think, well, God's just trying to get us to be good. You should be good. But the law is not about behavioral modification. It's about a relational ratification, a relational substantiation. It's to say, I have this relationship with you. Now, this is the way you're going to live in this relationship with me. This is the way there's going to be this commitment and this covenant. Exodus 19, verse 5. He says, now if, here is this condition, if then, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. I've already rescued you. I've already told Pharaoh, you are my firstborn son. I've already shown you I'm committed to you. I've already done all the hard work. Now, if you will follow this, you'll obey and you'll fully keep these things, then you will not only be You'll no longer be slaves. You won't just be a people. You will be my people, and you will be my treasured possession. Like, so near and dear to me. If you'll do these things, it's your choice. But if you'll do that, life is going to be, like, you won't even, and, and he says this to them over and over again, life will be better than anything you've ever experienced before. It'll be better than anything you can imagine. It'll be better than any other nation will have it. By your being obedient and following my laws, that will be an indicator that you are unique amongst all the nations of the world. You will be a nation that's set apart, and I will be your God. I will be your king. That's the theocracy. I will be the one, and I will provide for you. And there is nothing that any other nation or any other king or any other idol or anything in this world has to offer that's better than living in step in this relationship. That's what he says to them. And then he goes on, verse 6. Although the whole earth is mine, like I don't need anyone or anything, the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Listen, up to this point, for hundreds of years, they had only been slaves. They had been disposable tools in the hands of Pharaoh. They had been used. They had been abused. And now God says, you don't have to be slaves anymore. You can be a nation. You can be a kingdom. You can be my nation and my kingdom. And not only that, but you can be a nation that is holy, set apart, different than any other nation, a kingdom of priests. Now he says, you've been slaves. That's all you've been told is that you're not worthless. I am elevating you to the level of priest for this world. And That was God's goal. A little side note. I don't have time to go too far down this rabbit trail. But his plan A was that all of Israel would be a kingdom of priests. In four or five weeks, we may get into the whole golden calf uh, issue in that deal. Some of you know uh, ahead. Aaron becomes the high priest, his sons are priests, and it's the tribe of Levi. The Levitical tribe becomes the priestly tribe. That was plan B. Plan A was that they would be a priestly nation, not just one tribe. Kind of cool thing? You fast forward when Jesus fulfills all things. Peter writes this in 1 Peter when he says this, you are a chosen people, those who are in Christ now, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Again, this picture that we've been rescued from the slavery of darkness, brought into light, and God has called us, not just Israel, not just the Levitical tribe, but all who are in Christ to be priests and a holy nation. Okay, I gotta stop there. I gotta stop there. I gotta, gotta move on. Okay, now, in the ancient world, in Uh, covenants, or treaties, or commitments, there were different kinds of of commitments you could enter into, whether it was kings, or nations, or two parties. One of them is this. It's a bilateral parity treaty. Bilateral in that there's two parties, whether it's two nations, or two kings, or two individuals, whatever. Parity in that these two are co-equals. One is not above the other, and one is not superior to the other. One is not uh, submissive to the other. They are co-equals, and they enter into a treaty, or it could also be said a covenant. And in this treaty or this covenant where these two equals come together, it's a, um, a mutually beneficial arrangement. It's an agreement. It's a contract. The, the best picture of this would be like a business contract. These two parties come together, whether the businesses or, I mean, it happens in your, you have a, a plumber come to your house. You need this service done. He says, this is what it'll cost. And you say, okay, so it's mutually beneficial. You get the, the toilet flushing. He gets the money to put it in the bank and it all works out well. You don't own him. He doesn't own you. It, it's just, it's, it's a, 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 a co-equal existence there that, that both parties, in a, in a business sense, it's a, a quid pro quo that goes both ways. And if I do this, then you'll do this. And if I don't do this, then you don't do this. And if you don't do this, then you break the covenant. All right, that's one way. There's a second one, and it's called a bilateral suzerainty treaty, that there's a suzerain. In this one, there's two parties, but one of them is superior over the other. One of them has power over the other. One of them is stronger or more wealthy. And usually in these kind of treaties or these kind of covenants, one one of the parties involved doesn't even need to be a part of this treaty, can take it or leave it, but one of them is desperately needy. This is kind of the whole idea of vassal states. All right, I need the protection of this country, so I'll come and kind of be submissive to them. I need them, that kind of thing. Let let me illustrate this. Let me illustrate this, and hopefully this becomes clear and not just a story about an old car. I've got a picture here of my wife and I, and we're in this Mustang. This is a 1966 Ford Mustang convertible. It's a four-speed with a 289, great little V8 engine, 289. I love driving this car. This is where up at, at uh, the lake up there by Mount Chuckson. Love driving this car. Fun car to drive. Uh, I drive it quite frequently. This is not my car. This car belongs to my father-in-law. My father-in-law paid for this car. My father-in-law's name is on the title of this car. My father-in-law put the tabs on this car. My father-in-law pays the insurance, insurance premium on this car. When this car needs new tires, my father-in-law pays and puts those tires on it. Two years ago, the carburetor was having some issues. My father-in-law paid to have the entire carburetor rebuilt. Last summer, there were some brake issues. My father-in-law paid to have all the brakes done. It's my father-in-law's car. He, it's his. He, uh, there's no question about that. He says to me, you can drive the Mustang anytime, anywhere. I only ask four things. One that you put non-ethanol gas in it. There's a station two miles from my house that has that. Two, that you change the oil every 3,000 miles. Three, that when you're not driving it, make sure that the top is back. And four, that you keep it in your garage. Now, if you're not seeing where I'm going with this, let me work a little bit more. So he says, here's kind of the conditions of this commitment, this covenant that we're entering into about the Mustang. Listen. He's got a lot more skin in the game. He doesn't need for me to drive that car. I need him to let me drive that car. And when he says, here's the conditions of being in this relationship with the Mustang, I say, I will do whatever you say. I'll put in the non-ethanol gas. I'll change the oil. I'll put the top up. I'll keep it in my garage. Now, if I still have lost you, let me try to get really, really specific. In that relationship... My father-in-law has something that I want and need. He doesn't need me. In this relationship with the Lord, I am that I am. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. I don't need because I am self-sufficient. The Lord has a relationship with Israel, not because he needs it, but Israel. He says to Israel, life in a relationship with me It's going to be absolutely amazing. And I have called you. I've brought you to myself. Now, if you want to be in this relationship, this is what it's going to require. You see that kind of a relationship. So the law is not primarily about behavior modification. It's saying we're in a relationship, and this is going to wrap. No other nation gets this, he says. You're my chosen people. You get the red convertible Mustang. You get this life in a relationship with the almighty God. And this is what is gonna show you how to live in that relationship. You know, in, um, in Exodus chapter 19, verse eight, it says this, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. They said, we're in, sign us up. We wanna be a part of this. This sounds fantastic. You know, in every religion, it seems like all of the sacrifices, all of the rituals, all the things are striving to somehow climb that stairway to heaven. Like like somehow we've got to make our way up towards God. But what you see not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, is that God descends the stairway. In the most positive sense of the word, God condescends. He descends to be with His people. We're going to look at that a lot more next week. He descends to be with His people. So Moses is there. The people say, "We want to enter into this covenant." And God says this uh, in Exodus nineteen twenty: The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. All right, that's the introduction. Um, It's been a few weeks since I've preached, so I've got a lot stored up. Now we get to chapter 20, and to answer the question I asked before, this is where the Ten Commandments are found. So we get to chapter 20. Moses goes up on the mountain. Uh, You can read all this on your own. He he says, Moses only comes up. Everyone else, stay off of the mountain. Moses comes up. And then in chapter 20, verse 2, we read this. He says, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord. That's what he said before. Tell them, I am the Lord. But look what he adds here. I am the Lord, your God. Now, I'm not just the Lord. I am. But we've entered into a covenant. We've entered into a relationship. We've entered into this agreement. And now I am the Lord. I am that I am. I don't need anyone else, but I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In case you've forgotten, up to this point, you have done nothing. I'm the one who brought you. I'm the one who brought you to myself. I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who rescued you. I am the Lord your God. It's all within the context of a relationship. Because up to this point, all they've known how to do is to be slaves. He says, now I want to teach you what it looks like to be in a relationship with Yahweh. I want you to know what it's like to be a a holy nation, a a royal priesthood. Because you've never experienced that before. What I'm getting ready to tell you is not just about behavioral modification, but it's a relationship that we've entered into and to ratify that and to help you not only understand how to act, but how to think and how to live because it's different. You need to understand that because outside of that context, we have to throw it away. I mean, rules without relationship equals rebellion, That's what happens. If you have rules without the relationship, it's gonna result in, if you have the what without the why, you're gonna say, no, thank you. I don't want any part of it. And that's why some of you have walked away from God. That's why some of you've walked away from church. That's why some of you've walked away from your spiritual walk because all you were ever taught was this without this. And this is not the order. It starts with this. And out of that relationship with God, he says, come on now. Let's walk through this together. So now he gets ready to give them the first of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 You shall have no other gods before me. Seems simple enough, doesn't seem like too much to ask. Remember, they've been in Egypt for 400 years in a culture, in a nation with polytheism, all kinds of idols. All, you remember if you were here uh, in week two or three, there were 80 major deities and sub-deities underneath those in Egypt. They've been immersed in this for hundreds of years. Now, it may have just taken them a few days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's gonna take a lot longer to get Egypt out of Israel. That, that, the culture and the, the idols. And so he says, listen, I wanna make sure that if we're gonna be in this relationship You will have no other gods before me. And if, if they can get this one right, they can get this one commandment right, all the rest would fall into place. Again, it's not an unreasonable expectation because the Lord, who's already done so much and has promised to do even more, says, I I, want to be exclusive. I want to be the one and only in your life. Let me try to illustrate it this way it's interesting throughout the old and the new testament god's relationship with people is often referred to in a marriage relationship Um, in the new testament the church is the bride of christ in the old testament israel you know he talked about israel being like in this marriage covenant Um, over 20 years ago 20 and a half years ago i entered into a marriage covenant with my wife doreen and I said, leaving all others and, and being true to her, you know, I'll be faithful. Now, I am faithful to my wife, Doreen, not so that she will be my wife. I'm faithful to my wife, Doreen, because she's my wife. Do you see there's a, there's a big difference there? In my life, there are certain things that I don't do. I don't go on dating apps. I'm not going to FarmersOnly.com. I'm not going to Christian Mingle or Tinder or any dating mix-em-up sites. I I don't do that. Not so that she'll be my wife, because she's my wife. It's a ratification of the relationship. In my world, financially, all that I have is hers. Not so that she'll be my wife, because she's my wife. There are things with my life, with my time, with my plans, with my dreams that she's included not so that she'll be my wife, but because she's my wife. I hope that's really clear. Because when we get to this whole thing of the rules of God, the laws of God, it's not so that we can be accepted by God. It's because we've been accepted by God. And he says to them, listen, because I've delivered you, because I've brought you to myself... This is what I'm asking, that I would be the only God. And it starts relational. And if they could just get this one right. And then from there, the second one kind of flows out of the first one to when the second one says, you shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below, or shall not bow down to them or worship them. He's talking about all the stuff that they've probably been doing in Egypt. He says, I don't want any of those idols anymore. They're worthless. You're going to sh- sh- shortchange yourself. And I don't want you making an idol to represent me. I don't want you to try to shrink me down. I don't want you to try to control me. I am that I am. Don't even make an image, a statue of me. Not just those gods, but of me either. And we'll look at that a little bit more next week. And he says, and here's the reason. <clears throat> this isn't for me. This is for you. He says, because I'm a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. And then, don't get hung up on this, I wish we had time to go into it, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, those who hate me. It then goes on to say, and blessing those who are a thousand generations, maybe he's just using this in contrast, there's consequences if you don't love me, and there's incredible benefits if you will, but he says, I'm jealous, not because I like, I need to have you exclusively because I, he says, because I don't want anything less than the best for you. And to worship a cow or to worship some wooden idol. He says, they can't do anything for you. And I'm jealous for you to have the best. That's why I've called you to be a holy nation, to be in a relationship with me. And, and uh, he would later write the, the Shema, this, this prayer that Jewish people to this day would pray every morning, every night. They have it on their doorposts. So some of the Orthodox would have it on their head and their hands out of Deuteronomy. It says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's not a ton of gods. There's not 80 gods. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Jesus would later quote the Shema when he asked him, what is the greatest commandment? That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind strength. And the second is like, is love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I have to stop there. I know we only got through two of those commandments. But you can read them on your own. This could be, this could be it's an entire series. But let's fast forward uh, for a few chapters up to uh, chapter 24, verse 7. So Moses has all this, he's been up on the mountain. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, as they have before We will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Sounds great, great intentions. Very motivated at this point. We want to be blessed by God. We want to experience that. We want to be unlike all other nations. We want to follow. Some of you are aware, this will last less than 40 days. Because 40 days later, there's a big disaster. Like I said, we may talk about that in four or five weeks. But at this point, they're all ready to go. Like, count us in, sign us up. Talked about this uh, a couple of years ago. In the Old Testament, when covenants were made, they didn't sign contracts. There was a, a visual way of making a covenant where they would cut an animal in two and the, the, the contracting parties would walk between the two pieces of the animal or animals in a way of saying, may this happen to me if I'm not faithful to the covenant. Okay, don't have time to go into all that. But here's this covenant that's entered into, it's where we get the whole the, the idea of cutting a deal Cutting a contract comes from that. And that it was like signed and sealed with blood. So it goes on and says this. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. Wait, 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 wait. That sounds vaguely familiar. And I know I haven't read Exodus in 100 years. This is the blood of the covenant. Where have I heard that before? Okay, I'll come back to that. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Some of you know exactly where you've heard that before. On the last night of Jesus' life, before he goes to the cross, he takes that cup, which was a part of the Passover, the blood of the lamb, and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is my not the blood of animals. This is my blood of the new covenant given for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's it's an amazing thing. When you look at all of that, here's where I think we go so wrong in the American church, not just the American church, throughout history, is when we make the law, and keeping the law, and following the rules, and doing all the right things, the end, in and of themselves, devoid of the relationship. Oh yeah, we talked about the relationship, But it's all about keeping the law. It's all about keeping the rules. And the reality is, is that the laws and the rules can't change a heart. They can can modify behavior. But you can't legislate righteousness. And the law is even weak in trying to bring about real change. In fact, I've got, I've got to hurry through this. Um, in Hebrews, it says this For the law made nothing perfect. In fact, Paul says in Romans, The law made things worse for me because when I found out what was against the law, I wanted to do it. I mean, it's like, see that, that do not touch wet paint? What do you want to do? You want to touch it. If I didn't know it was wet, I would have just walked right by it. He says, That's what the law did to me. The law has made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. What is that better hope? John chapter one, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the hope. Or how about this in Galatians? So the law was put in charge. Why? To lead us, to point us, to send us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That even then, the law was saying, there's gonna be a better way. There's gonna be a way that it's not you trying to earn your way. It's not you trying to perform your way. And it's not about behavior modification. It's about what Christ is gonna do. Or how about this one? For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. We'll look at that next week. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. All right, so you look at all that and then you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law. No, I have come to fulfill the law. So in the context of relationship, a covenant relationship with God and his sinful people, he gives the law to help them know how to live in this covenant and it would point to Jesus, and the law is fulfilled in Jesus. The law of Moses is fulfilled in Jesus. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was all about keeping the law. I mean, he was like a professional law keeper. And at the end of it all, he figures out of that how futile it is to try and do this on his own, though he's probably the best who ever lived keeping the law. And he says, I consider that all garbage, that I may know Christ, that I may be found in him, look at this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So, what do we do then with the law? What do we do with being good? What do we do with following the, the, the scriptures? What do we do with pursuing a holy life? Does it all go out the window? Do we throw it all away? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, Paul would say. What we need to understand is our living a life of holiness, surrendering and submitting to the Holy Spirit, being transformed by the word of God, following God's will, following God's way, surrendering and submitting is not trying to get into a right relationship with God. It's precisely because we have been made right in Christ and are in a right relationship. I love, love, love this verse out of Hebrews where it says, because by one sacrifice, he has made, past tense, perfect forever. That's us. The righteousness of Christ. Those who are being made, present tense, holy. We are righteous and we are holy. We are in a relationship with Christ because of what he's done. And because of that, now, we allow the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. We transform by the the, the renewing of our mind with God's word, which is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. To walk in step with the Spirit in this relationship where God says, I have already redeemed you. I've already delivered you from the kingdom of darkness. I've already paid the penalty for your sins. Now come and let me show you what it looks like to no longer be a slave to sin, but to be a child of God. See, the law is not about behavioral modification in and of itself. It's about a relationship we have and we've been called into to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's what God had in mind for Israel. That's what God has in mind for every single one. What if we could change not just our actions, but the way we think, our attitudes, our approach, our life, to no longer live as slaves to sin, but to live as children of God.